Wow, uh, thank you, church. Um, man, that prayer time was, was meaningful, um, timely, you know, and, you know, a lot of times you can sit down in conversations with folks and try to explain to them, especially as a pastor, um, the value of being a part of a church, and sometimes it's just hard to put into words, and, uh, man, that was an expression of why, because my family is no different than any other. Um, God calls all of us to do different things and in different ways. And a lot of times that call is, is difficult and challenging. You know you're supposed to do it, but it's still scary. And uh, you get close to, to where we are in this particular part in our lives. And, man, we're excited, but it's, it's scary. And there are times where you just need to be prayed over. And uh, I can't thank you enough for that, for those of you that that prompted that, the, the staff are putting it together in the prayers of each of you this morning. I, I hope that's a sign of encouragement to each of you that that's what we want to be here. When you go through your journey, whatever it is, this journey of life, you've got people here that will come alongside you and say, man, we're here, we're, we're with you, and we'll lift you up. And so I'm grateful and, and, and really humbled to be a part of a church family like this one. And with that being said, I actually want to start... Uh, today with a little bit of a state of the church address, I guess you could say for lack of a better description. Um, It's 2019, and we're starting a new series today. And uh, I want to tell you a little bit more about that series here in in a little bit, but I I really wanted to take the first few minutes of today's message and just kind of tell you what, what to be praying for, what to be excited about, what to be leaning into as we head into this new year and what God is calling us to and to revisit a few things that are very instrumental to who we are. And, and because of that prayer time, you're mindful of the things that we've been mentioning the last couple of weeks that my family, we're getting ready to, to head overseas to bring our boy home. We're incredibly excited about that. The next two weeks, um, I'm going to be gone. Uh, but another thing that I love about this church is that it is filled with gifted believers that use their gifts in so many different ways. And so for the next two Sundays, we're going to continue this series and you're going to get a chance to hear from Brian Briscoe. And Warren Etheridge, you've heard from both of them before, uh, both church members here. Warren is, is newer to our church family. He's the BSM director, and I think I saw them walking in the back with little Wren. You got Wren today? Warren, we're glad you guys are here. I've been praying for you and Sarah and for your family. Um, but these guys are, are faithful teachers, gifted teachers, gifted communicators, and so they're going to continue to lead us through this series. And so I want you guys to continue uh, to come in and hear the exciting things that we're going to walk through over the next few weeks. In addition to this new series, I want you mindful that in 2019, it's a big year for UBC. Uh, this is the year that we get to celebrate our 90th anniversary. So June 2nd, mark it down. We're going to celebrate that in a lot of fun, different ways. And over the next few weeks, first part of the year, we're going to put some things in front of you that we hope will challenge us as a congregation, encourage us, inspire us, so that we can really celebrate that and commemorate that milestone in a meaningful way. And so be, be mindful of, of the significance of this year in our church life and be praying for the ways in which God can stir you to participate in the life of this church, which is really what I want to kind of dive into for the next few moments. Um, the, if, you can, if you were with us a year ago, if you can kind of journey back with me, this time last year in January, the series that we went through was referred to as We Are. And it was designed to kind of talk through who we are as a church family and to cast some of the vision of what it is that we want to press into. And there were three things that we really emphasized. We said we are a place of healing, we are people who love justice, and we are disciples who make disciples. And so I want to revisit those things very briefly, okay? Now, if you were to take those three 
messages or those three ideas and form a triangle out of it, the base of that triangle would be discipleship. And what I mean by that is that the foundation of all that we do here, we, we want to be about discipleship. And when we use the word discipleship, we're, we're talking about more than just some post-conversion Bible study, right? What we're talking about is the, the Great Commission. We're talking about outreach. We're talking about evangelism. We're talking about the call to go and make disciples, to baptize people of all nations, and then teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded, right? It is, it is the heartbeat of the church. It is the foundation of who we are at UBC, and so here's, here's how we've been pursuing it recently. Last year, last spring, we started to think through, okay, what, what does discipleship look like in our midst? And we, we launched like four or five discipleship groups. And it was, each one was led by a minister on the staff. And it was, it was designed to help us walk through, okay, what does this look like? What's the philosophy? What's the content? How do we walk through these things? And, and it allowed us to really kind of settle in on some very critical points of emphasis that we want to see take place here in discipleship at UBC. Right? It, discipleship for us is about getting people connected to community. Right? We, we all need community. D- exhibit A this morning. Right? We want to be in God's Word together. We need to learn how do we study God's Word? How do we read God's Word together? We need accountability. We need people in our lives that are going to encourage us and, and, and press us on and inspire us and hold us accountable. And we need to inject in the DNA of all that this idea of outreach and evangelism. We need to be equipped to share our faith, to speak of our faith, to to share it with others, right? That needs to be a part of the DNA. So we settled on a lot of those things last spring, and then we went into this scholastic year thinking, okay, well, we want to talk about this more, but people need to kind of experience it. And so we launched kind of what we've started to refer to as preview groups, in the fall, we had 10 or 12 discipleship groups where we wanted to give more people an experience of what discipleship looked like. Well, we're doing that again this spring. We're hoping to have another 10 to 12 preview groups so that you can kind of get an awareness and familiarity of what discipleship is going to look like so that next fall, that's the goal, 2019, we can launch the more long-term robust vision of discipleship. So I say that to tell you, tell you this. If you have yet to have a chance to participate in a discipleship group, we would highly encourage you to prayerfully consider doing that this spring. Uh, we're in the stage of identifying facilitators and forming these groups, and we're hoping to launch them early to mid-February, and this be something that you can commit to. And, and we have some of those things already in place. And so be praying about that, and if you want to really actively participate, let us know. You can reach out to me, to Caroline. You can get online, I believe, and sign up. But, but that's a point of emphasis for our church. Now, complementing that is this commitment to outreach and evangelism, right, that, that falls under that umbrella. And, and the most natural way for us to do this as believers is to consider our sphere of influence, where God has placed us. How do we share our faith with, with family members, with coworkers, with neighbors, with classmates, wherever God has placed us? But you know what? As a church... We need to share it with the community. And that means sometimes us getting beyond our sphere of influence and going beyond our comfort zone. And so I want you to know, every Sunday evening, around 5.30, uh, Chris Wall, uh, one of the most gifted evangelists that I know, has committed to say, hey, I'll take people. If you want to help engage this community, we've got some other faithful people that have gone with him that can also help equip and train. Uh, if that is a passion of yours, I want you to know that's an opportunity we want you to consider. It may scare you to death and I'd still tell you to consider it, right? If you're just sitting there going, I mean, that sounds so uncomfortable, I'd never do that. Go, and you don't have to say a word. Just observe, pray, see what happens. But that's something else that we're committed to. So, so all those things speak to this foundation of discipleship. A quick word about these other two pieces of the triangle real quick. Uh, recovery. 
Uh, we are a place for healing. We want to be a church where people can come and say, man, I am, I'm broken and I need help. I need help getting over fill in the blank. Well, for the last several months, we've had a leadership group that has been working through what does recovery ministry look like at UBC. We've been looking at all the other recovery ministries that so many other churches do, learning their best practices and figuring out how do we make this germane to our culture. And right now we're in the the throes of trying to develop curriculum, which is no small task. And so we appreciate your prayers. But I bring it up for this reason. If you're in that place where you would say, man, that's, I need help. I need help getting over this addiction, getting over this grief. Do not wait on us. Come to us. Okay, don't, don't wait for some ministry launch. Let us know. We will get you connected to the support system, the network that you need, because that's who we want to be. All right, that is a huge part of our identity. So I want you to know that. And then lastly, we are people who love justice. You, you've heard things like this. We've, we've mentioned to you before, January is an awareness for human trafficking. We're, we're asking for gift cards to give to organizations like Traffic 911 that goes in and rescues girls out of this industry. In November, we talked about all the different ways that we can address the, the needs of orphans and family preservation. Here in a couple of weeks, some folks from our church are going to go and, and figure out how do, how do we build beds for homes that are at risk from being, uh, families that are at risk of being pulled apart because they don't have enough beds in the home. So it's a practical way to pursue family preservation, and we've got folks that are committed to that. We, we want to be a church that's a light in the darkness. We don't want to just sit back and react. We want, to, we want to advocate for those things. We want to promote those things and be proactive. And so all these things are being pursued, which means we all need to be lifting them up in prayer. Not to mention all the other stuff we do with worship that you heard about on Wednesday nights and ESL ministry and missions and outreach. So many things in the life of this church. Listen, God is at work. Amen? something to celebrate. And as you head into this year, I want you thinking, where, where am I supposed to plug in? Where am I supposed to connect? What is God leading me to do? Man, we're here to go on this journey together. And so with all that said, let me just pray for our church. Let me pray for this new year and the things that God has put before us, and then we'll get to the text, all right? Would you bow your heads? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you, and we are so humbled and honored to be called your children. To, to be a part of this family, to be brothers and sisters so that we can go through life and pursue your callings in ways that are meaningful and significant and sometimes, Father, overwhelming, but we can have the courage and the confidence because of what you have promised us, what you have given us through Jesus and the, the fellowship of the saints. And so I pray that all those things, those promises that you extend to us would, would be buried deep in our heart this morning. God, as we prepare for this new series, that you would send your spirit to open our hearts and our minds, that we could see you more clearly and marvel at who you are and what you have done and what you're going to do. We thank you for this time, and we pray it all in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis. It's on page one in your Bible, if you have our time finding it. Um, so, so here's the deal. We're starting a new series today, and today is going to be an introduction to Genesis. It's not going to be this long exposition of a text or passages of Scripture. It's really more about the context and, and some important things that we need to have in mind when we read the book of Genesis, okay? Because Genesis is, is easily one of the most important books of the Bible, right? But it's also one of the most misunderstood at times. And so we really need to be thoughtful with how do we approach it and how do we need to understand it. Here, here's a good example. The title that we've given this series is Promises. That may not be what you typically think of when you think of Genesis, right? You might think about 
creation and, and origins and all those other things, which is appropriate, but <clears throat> what we really want to emphasize are the promises that, that really govern the beginning, right, and how that influences us even to today. And so we want to have the right perception of this book. So today's message is really designed to say, okay, what, what kind of thoughtfulness, what kind of mindset do we need to have when we pick up the book of Genesis? And so in order to, to navigate that conversation, here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to discuss uh, the authorship. We're going to talk about the context within which uh, this book was presented to us. We're going to talk about the structure of it, and then we'll kind of conclude by hitting on some, some themes that we really want to have as a foundation to understanding it and interpreting it, okay? So let's begin with authorship, all right? Now, to talk about the authorship of Genesis, you really have to talk about the authorship of the Pentateuch. And if you haven't heard that word, essentially what the Pentateuch is, is a word that describes the first five books of the Bible. It's viewed as one collection, all right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That, that is seen as one book. So when you start saying who wrote Genesis, you're really asking who wrote the Pentateuch, right? That it's one giant collection. And that's a hard question to ask because you're talking about some of the most ancient documents known to mankind covering some of the most ancient stories of mankind. So authorship is a natural question because you start thinking to yourself, okay, so who was there when Noah was building the ark? How do we know that this is how it went? How did the story get to us? And so you can't help but but ask yourself, where does this come from? So let me just go ahead and give you the very simple answer. No one knows, okay? There's a lot of theories, a lot of ideas, and I want to talk about a few of them. At the end of the day, no one really knows, okay? And we'll, we'll talk about the implications of that here in a second. But, but there are some very thoughtful explorations into the authorship that I think are worth us knowing for a little bit, okay? Here, here's the most widely accepted view for the authorship of Genesis. What they would argue, what, what scholars would argue, is that there are four sources— that create the Pentateuch, okay? And, and because we don't really know who wrote these sources, we ascribe a letter of the alphabet, okay? J-D-E-P. There's reasons for those, but I won't bore you with all that, right? J-D-E-P, or the, those references to the sources of the Pentateuch, okay? And, and what the belief is, is we have all these sources that cover the Pentateuch, and, and they were compiled together to give it to us in its kind of state that we have, and it was most likely compiled around 5th century B.C., it's a long time ago, okay? And in the way in which we identify these sources is to evaluate uh, the, the scriptures with certain criteria. And so here are some examples. When you read through the Pentateuch, one criteria can be the word that is used to describe God or is used for God, okay? Because different sources will use different Hebraic terms to refer to God. And that could begin to give you a clue as to which source is which. Or you might look at structure, okay? Structure like... Uh, uh, repetitive stories. A lot of times in, in Hebraic literature, you would have a repetition of a story. For example, creation. You got kind of a version of it in one chapter one, you got a version of it in chapter two. So that's a particular technique. Not all the sources use that technique. So that could be a distinction between sources. You look at style, you look at vocabulary, you look at different themes. And so, so scholars look at all these things and say, okay, we think we have these four different sources that kind of com can comprise the Pentateuch. But then you have to ask yourself, how did they come together, right? Who, who brought these together? And now there's, there's different philosophies of how these sources came together. One is the idea of more of a documentary view, which is to say these sources were largely preserved and, and they were just documented and put together with, with little to no change. And that's how we're reading them. Another way of thinking would be more of the supplementary point of view, 
which is kind of an idea that there's this snowball effect, that the original sources had limited content, limited detail, but through time, more material was supplemented, and it kind of grew. It's kind of like the, the fish story, right? The first time you come home and you tell the story, the fish was this big, but then it gets this big, and then it gets this big, right? Every time you tell the story, you supplement more information. That's another way to view the authorship of the Pentateuch. The third way is fragmentary, right? That there are all these small fragments of these sources, and an editor looked at them all like a puzzle and kind of arranged them and put them together so that they made more sense. Then you have the question of time period, right? So we know there is an editor that took these stories possibly, but when did they put it together and how did they put it together? A lot of people would argue for an early date for this, kind of pre-Mosaic or Mosaic. Moses, more often than not, gets the credibility to either being the editor or the author of the Pentateuch. And the reason for that is is that there are Old Testament references to Moses writing things down consistently. Even in John chapter 5, you get a reference to Moses writing things down. And so that is an accepted theory for the Pentateuch, okay? Um, Sometimes people would argue it would be a little bit later, be the monarchy, kind of during the rule of the kingdom, okay? So there are a lot of different times and ways to discuss all these things. But here's what I want to emphasize today. I want you to have that as context and information so that you know there's been some thorough and thoughtful research into it. But, but every scholar I read the last couple of weeks over this, here's what they'd argue. The best way to read Genesis is just to read the text itself. Right? Though we have all these questions, though, though we have all these curiosities about its origins and how it was comprised, what we can't miss is that Jews and Christians alike for more than two millennia, for thousands of years, have seen it as a sacred, holy document. And that demands reverence and respect. This is true, really, almost for any passage of Scripture. Right? We, we deserve, or, or, or it's, it's, it's wise for us, I guess is a better way to say it, for us to ask questions of authorship and to see what we can learn. But at the end of the day, you kind of also have to ask yourself, what difference does it make? Like, like, okay, so it's Moses, it's not Moses. Does that change the fact that for thousands of years, generation upon generation has seen this as the sacred text that has inspired poets and writers in generations and generations of people, right? A lot of times we come to the scriptures and we have this, this train of thought. And a lot of times we want it to answer certain questions. And if it doesn't, then we diminish its credibility, Here's the reality, y'all. This is either God's word or it isn't. And you're going to approach it with one of those two mindsets. If it isn't, you're going to approach it and you're going to say, well, it's inspiring, it's interesting, there's probably words of wisdom in here, there's things that I can research, or you can see it as the living, active word of God. Right? And the reason I emphasize that is because a lot of times we can get lost and we, we miss the message that is actually there just because certain questions weren't satisfied for us. And and if I can be frank, a lot of times that can lead us to a position of arrogance, right? That that all of a sudden I can dismiss the credibility of this ancient work because it didn't didn't answer all the questions of authorship that I had and therefore it can't be reliable. That implies that you are a certain level of enlightened and progressive than all the thousands of people that came before you that saw it as sacred. Those doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask those questions, but we shouldn't ask them to the dismissal of what this piece has meant to so many people for thousands of years. It is sacred. It is the living and active word of God. And so we, we approach this with tremendous reverence and respect. Let's talk about the context for a moment within which this Pentateuch was compiled. 
whenever you begin to study uh, Old Testament literature, you often have to think about the ancient Near East. That's the time period within which most of this literature was compiled, and, and that's just a way to, ref, uh, to refer to that particular time period. There were numerous accounts of creation that were written during the ancient Near East. In the stories that we have in Genesis, especially with creation, there are some similarities to these other creation accounts. There are some commonalities, especially broad stroke-based kind of uh, commonalities. For example, you can see that there is a personal God who is invested in and controls the affairs of humanity. That seems to be true in almost every creation account from this time period. You can see that, that mankind is more than material, right? There are spiritual beings. There's a spiritual nest to humanity. You can see that when the deities create something in these creation accounts, it typically is some statement on light versus darkness, good versus evil. Okay, those, those are common. But what really stands out about Genesis is not its similarities to ancient Near Eastern literature, but its differences. It is incredibly distinct. Number one, it's monotheistic. Right, you read these other creation accounts, you read about suns and stars and moons, those are deities. In Genesis, there is one God, and he's created all those things. Right, you can look at these other distinctions like the creation of mankind. Right? In these other pieces of literature, the creation of humanity is almost like an afterthought, almost circumstantial. But in Genesis, it is the crowning moment of creation, a significant statement about the divine human relationship. Right? Even just the trajectory of the story, one ancient Near Eastern uh, creation story speaks more to progress. And the idea is, is that when things began, it was really terrible. But as time has gone on, it has progressed to become better and better and better. It's the opposite message of Genesis, which is what? In the beginning, everything was good. But as things have progressed, they have not gotten better and better. They've gotten worse and worse. And so the point is this. Um, the context within, this was, within which Genesis was written was a strong indictment against the assumptions of God, the world, and humanity during that time period. A strong indictment against those assumptions. And I actually want to stop there and ask you this morning, what are your assumptions that maybe need to be challenged? What are your assumptions about God, the world, and humanity that needs to be challenged? Let me give you an example of one that we can often point to in our society today. You think about just Genesis 1, 2, and 3, just the first three pages of this document, and we get an answer towards the goal of redemption, right, this relationship with the Creator, but we also get a word towards why we even need redemption, right? The fallenness, the brokenness, sinfulness, humanity, right? Well, how many people today have such a misconstrued idea of redemption at all? How, how common is it for people to go through life and think to themselves, you know, life's pretty good. I don't make too many mistakes, not in trouble with the law. I don't have any major enemies. I've got good friends, good family, successful career. I'm good. I'll probably go to heaven. Right? This distorted view of not even what redemption is. Redemption is not about morality. Right? Your need for it isn't based on whether or not you can be moral enough or good enough. Right? These are the assumptions we walk through. What Genesis teaches us is that, listen, the goal is not how moral you are. The goal is your relationship with the Creator. And your need for it is not because you can follow rights and wrongs, but because you are, by nature, separated from your creator, right? So Genesis is meant to challenge 
these assumptions. Let me tell you another assumption that we often have to somewhat surrender when we pick up a book like this. We tend to approach Genesis, and what are our questions in modernity? Our questions are typically related to history and science, aren't they? All right, so you read through the stories of Genesis, and you see something about this amazing flood, and you go, is that true? Is that historically accurate? Can we prove that somehow? Is this documented anywhere else? Have we found the ark? And we think all these things about history. Or you read Genesis 1, and you think all about science. You start doing math and adding up all the different days and years and all these things, and you come up with an age of the earth, the old earth, the young earth. What do you think, right? How about evolution? And you start thinking about all these different scientific questions. Good questions. Questions that should be asked, questions that should be wrestled with. Here's my point. Those questions were probably not anywhere even in the realm of consideration when it was formed. So don't treat it for something that it isn't. I mean, Genesis 1, in many respects, is poetry. You don't go to Shakespeare to find out answers on science, right? We need to approach it with the right perspective. And when we come into it expecting it to be scientific, we often fall short because that's not exactly what it was designed to do. It's like going to McDonald's and then getting upset that there's like not a hostess to sit you at your table. And so then you're angry and you go sit down and you're like, waiter, waiter, need my menu, come on now. Like if you did that, people would be walking over to you doing, dude, it's McDonald's, right? Like you walk up to the counter, it's fast food. You don't come here for an elegant dining service experience. You come here because it's cheap, right? That's why we go get fast food. Unless we go to Bueno, because at Bueno it's good and cheap, right? It's kind of unique. But see what I'm saying? Here's my point, y'all. Don't expect it to be something it's not. Is there overlap? Yes. Should you ask those questions? Absolutely. Does, does it help challenge us and inform us? For sure. It's not a science book. It's a story. It's a narrative. And so we have to approach it with the right mindset, with the right understanding. And one of the things that, that helps us with that, again, is the structure. All right? The structure that we find in Genesis in particular. Here's our verse for the day. You can turn there if you want. It's just one verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the introduction to the structure of Genesis. But let me press beyond that. It's not just the introduction to Genesis. It's not just the introduction to the Pentateuch. It's the introduction to the whole story. And it sets the tone that helps us understand how Genesis is actually structured. What does it tell us? In the beginning, there's God. Everything all of its origins rest with a creator. And he created the heavens and the earth. And when you see a statement like that in the story that follows, it tells us that everything that was made was designed to be in some connection with this creator. And this is where we find this connection to our past and our future. This one profoundly significant statement. In the beginning, God. He is the backdrop to everything that we see in existence. And, and that's kind of the way that Genesis begins to flow. When you look at the structure, there are two dominant sections that tend to be evaluated. You have Genesis 1 through 11 and then 12 through 50. Okay, those are the two sections. 1 through 11 serves as a backdrop to the creation of the world, right, in this this drama that begins to unfold between God and humanity. 12 through 50 is the story of the ancestors. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, 
and all the, the discussions of God's interaction with these ancestors. And so when you look at that structure, here's, here's the overarching message, right? Is that, is that God has called for himself a world, and he's called for himself a people. And we get to see that drama unfold. In fact, you and I are still living into that story. That is the church, right? It moves from the, from the forefathers to the ancestors to the nation of Israel and ultimately to the church. We are still living out this ancient promise that God has called for himself a world and now he's called for himself a people. And we get to participate in that. So the backdrop of Genesis 1 through 11, we're going to spend the next month and a half just in those first few chapters. The backdrop of Genesis 1 to 11 is meant to help us understand the promises that exist for the ancestors. All right, here's what we see in this backdrop in these first 11 chapters. Number one, we see the hopelessness of mankind without God's intervention. Right? With, without God intervening, there is no hope. Without his intervention, there is no hope. We see the hopelessness of mankind. We must look to our creator for hope. The second thing we see in these first 11 chapters is God's ideals for his creation. We see his promises. We see what it is that he wants to lead us towards. We see the hope that he's calling us to. We see the promises of this relationship, of this community. All these different things exist and begin to speak to those first 11 chapters, which gives all the significance we need for these stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. You take away that common thread, and we lose its coherence. We lose its consistency. And that's really where I want to conclude, right, is those ideals, these promises that begin to shape the narrative that we see through the entire, not just Genesis, but through the entire Scripture and into today. Right, what, are, what are some of these promises that we see early on in Genesis. I mean, think about just a few. We're going to explore them in greater detail over the next few weeks, but think about just a few. Number one, it's good. When God creates, it's good. Think about the significance of that. He's not a God that creates disorder, not one that promotes evil or vindication. No, goodness. That's what he desires for us, something good. And what does he tell creation? Be fruitful, fill the earth, multiply. Right? We see this promise over and over again. Right? We see it not just after he creates, but we see it repeated after the flood to Noah. Right? Be fruitful, fill the earth, multiply. We see it even with Abraham, right? You're going to be fruitful. You're going to fill the earth, and it's going to be good. It's going to be a blessing. The, the journey that we're on is to experience this good creation where the fullness of the earth brings glory to our God and our Creator. And we see that at the very beginning. But the, the promise that I want to encourage you with this morning, what I want to leave you with today, is kind of the obvious promise that we see in these early pages of Genesis, right? And that's this idea of, of beauty out of chaos, right? Order out of disorder. You see it in both the, the physical world as well as the spiritual world. I mean, think about creation. It starts where the earth is formless and void and empty and dark, and God is hovering over the waters. It's chaos. And then God says, let there be light beauty. 
out of chaos. And with each and every successive day, that beauty is refined and given greater detail and greater intentionality. You see the chaos of the flood. You see its destruction. You see its disorder. But then the waters recede. A rainbow. Beauty. A covenant. Beauty. You see the Tower of Babel, which literally means disorder, means confusion. And then we see the scattering of God's people, the formation of different languages. But then what do we see? We see a covenant, a promise to Abraham. No, I'm going to bless all peoples of the earth. I see beauty out of chaos. This is one of the most profound and inspiring promises that we see at the very beginning that carries its way through every page of Scripture and into our own hearts. Our God is a God who makes beauty out of chaos. So about a year ago, I'm getting my oil changed, going to a mechanic, and I'm sitting there and waiting for my car to be finished. And I get a phone call. It's like one of those 1-800 numbers, telemarketers. I'm like, I'm going to let it go to voicemail. Didn't think anything of it, but they left a voicemail. I checked the voicemail. Turns out it's American Airlines. American Airlines saying, hey, just so you know, you've got all these miles saved up in your account, and it's enough to pay for two round-trip tickets anywhere in the continental United States. But you need to use them within this next time period or they're going to be gone. I thought, well, that's a really nice phone call to receive. That was great, you know? And it just so happened to come at a time where I was uh, trying to think through Christmas presents. And so I also knew that uh, Jennifer and I had some points saved up for hotels. And I thought, that's it. That's what I'll do for Christmas. We'll go on a trip. And so after about a year of planning and a bunch of different details, Jennifer and I decided to take this free flight, this free discounted hotel stay to New York. And so just a couple weeks ago, early December, uh, she and I got to go up to New York City during Christmas time, which was Incredible, right? I mean, it's what you see in the movies a lot. We got to go to see the tree in Rockefeller Center. We got to uh, ice skate in Central Park. It was, it was awesome. And one of the things that we really wanted to do while we were there, was things that was at the top of my list, was to go to the 9-11 Memorial Museum, right? We wanted to, to spend some time just to reflect on, on the significance of that event. And so we go to this museum. We spent half a day there, and it was, it was really intense. Uh, it was very profound. It was very inspiring. And as we left there um, that day, we walked back out of the museum into the courtyard, and we saw a tree, one tree that really kind of stood out more than any other. In fact, I've got a picture of it, and can show it to you today if we have it. Got this tree, and, and you can tell it was, it kind of stood out for several reasons, right? A lot of the other trees in the courtyard had already fallen victim to winter. Leaves were gone, they were kind of barren, and just felt like winter, it was cold that day, but this one tree that still had all of its leaves and still had all of its beauty of the fall attached to it. So we stood there and we marveled at the tree and all of its beauty. Now that story in and of itself is, is somewhat compelling, right? This, this beautiful tree on this beautiful winter day. But, but what makes it more compelling and, and what would make you marvel at it even more is to understand the story behind the tree. Right? Because the reality is, is we didn't just stumble upon it. We were told about it. Somebody had said to, to look for it, somebody in the souvenir shop. And they, they told us to look for it because of the story behind this tree. Here's the story behind this tree. We can all think back to the tragedy of 9-11 and the massive devastation that was created, the loss of life, the brutality of it, the pain, the suffering. You think back to ground zero and just the the unimaginable amount of destruction. 
and the process that it took to clean it up and to sort through all of that chaos. Well, as the crews were going through all of that devastation, they came across a tree, a tree that was burned. Its bark was burned. It was just completely destroyed and mangled. And here they were thinking it was one more thing that had fallen victim to this destruction when they discovered that it actually had signs of life in it. And so they sent it off to a special nursery not too far from there where it could be poured into and invested in and nurtured back to health. And over time, it actually began to survive and bloom. And so they took that tree and they planted it right back at ground zero. A symbol. Right? They actually call it the surviving tree. A symbol of something that could go through such heartache, such devastation, and such pain and still find life. A symbol of beauty out of chaos. And so people come in and they marvel at it and they, they look at it and they take it in for all it's worth. But, but I share it with you this morning because the way in which we truly marvel at it is not just to see the tree, but to see the story behind the tree. So much of the Christian faith is to, to marvel at Jesus. But to truly marvel at him, we've got to see more than just who he is. To understand Jesus, you have to understand the prophets. To understand the prophets, you have to understand the exile. To have to understand the exile, you have to understand the kingdom. To understand the kingdom, you need to understand the exodus. To understand the exodus, you need to understand the patriarchs. And to understand the patriarchs, you need to understand the promises. And to understand the promises, we need the beginning. That's the goal of this journey, to be in awe and to stand and marvel at this gospel that brings life from death, that brings hope out of the midst of despair through Jesus, and to marvel at it for all of its weight, for all of its grandeur, for all of its glory, because we see that it once again reminds us that we serve a God that creates beauty out of chaos, light out of darkness, something out of nothing. And if our God can do that, what can he do for you? What beauty needs to be restored in your life? Where is he calling you to go be that agent of change, of hope and life, order out of disorder? That's my hope and my goal as we go through this series. We can go back to the beginning. We can consider these ancient promises and it would compel us to once again come to the throne room of grace and stand in awe of this Jesus and this God who brings beauty out of chaos. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we celebrate you today. God, we, we celebrate just the magnificence of your strength, your might, your power, Father, that goes beyond words, that goes beyond comprehension and explanation. And so as we return to these ancient promises, Father, may we do so with the appropriate reverence and respect that they deserve, but may we also do so as people who long for that sort of restoration in our own lives. Father, for all those that are broken, that are hurting today, Father, may they find again this message of hope that you can bring beauty out of their chaos and out of their despair. Father, that you would compel us to go to these darkened places, to go to these places of need and help us be that voice of hope, to point people to the gospel and point people to a creator that challenges our assumptions of this world and this life within which we live so that we can once again discover the goal of redemption, to dwell with you and to fill the earth with your glory. Father, we 
we take this task on humbly, we take it on with reverence and respect, and we do so with the hope and the intention that you would be glorified. So Father, help us sing a song that declares to all those around us that we believe in you. We believe in this gospel. We believe in this hope. We believe in one who's created. We can bring our questions. We can bring our concerns. But we bring our convictions and our commitment and our loyalty as well. So may we resound with that song of praise now, Father, that we would declare we believe in you. We believe in this hope that you've given us, this promise of beauty out of chaos. It's in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen.